grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, As many of you know, last November 29th was a momentous day for the Novaks. The U.S. men's national soccer team clinched a 1-0 victory over Iran to allow them to advance to the round of 16. And also, our fifth son, Nathaniel Albert, safely arrived that evening. We are grateful, beyond grateful, for Nathaniel's presence in our family, for his squeals and vocal acrobatics, which never fail to entertain even the most moody middle schooler. Rarely does Nathaniel go without at least two brothers occupying a front row seat to talk to him. It's been a wild ride so far, and we can't believe it's been nearly four months. Katie drinks coffee each morning out of a mug that says, the days are long, but the years are short, which is a nice sentiment, but really the truth is that the days are seeming short, too. We're reliving a lot of moments we experienced with first Eli, and then Calvin, and then Oliver, and then Ezra. A lot of first-time rolling overs and first-time grabbing onto a toy. There's the standard practice of Novak babies growing two teeth by four months that are just now starting to peek through. There's a repurposing of clothes and burp cloths previously used by Nathaniel's older brothers. We've brought out all of our board books from storage and reshelved them, torn covers from babies chewing on them and all, and we've been getting them out to read with Nathaniel. And all of that leads me to this. One of the books that we have both in board book and picture book is the 1989 classic We're Going on a Bear Hunt by Michael Rosen and Helen Oxbury. It is a true classic, one whose title evokes either a sense of nostalgia or dread because the book can be exhaustively repetitive and many parents in moments of weakness have accidentally skipped a few pages while reading it for the 20th time to a child young enough not to notice. I would assume that somewhere out there some parent has done this. Not that I would know anything about it. But if you know this book, then you know the premise. Five children head out to hunt for a bear, a big one, they vow, only to encounter various nat natural obstacles along their way. Now don't fret. If you heard me say five children and you thought the book was about a father and his four children like I have my entire life long until just this week when I read an interview with the illustrator who said casually it's about five children. I'm still wrestling with this reality here a little bit this morning. But anyway, from long wavy grass to a deep cold river to thick oozy mud to a big dark forest to a swirling, whirling snowstorm to a narrow, gloomy cave, the children encounter one obstacle after another, obstacles which might prevent them from moving forward. And standing before each one, the children are forced to face their fears and reckon with an existential truth. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no, we have to go it. 
And so they passed through the tall, wavy grass and trudged through the thick, oozy mud and walked through the swirling, whirling snowstorm and so forth until they reach the narrow, gloomy cave and they actually find a large brown bear who chases the children back across each page, back through each obstacle until they reach their home and lock the door and climb into bed and under the covers and say in exhaustion, we're not going on a bear hunt again. The book is a delight. And for what it's worth, I am glad for an opportunity to have another child to enjoy the reading and rereading and rereading of this book. Oh no, we've got to go through it. Today our gospel text from John 11 is 45 verses in length. More short story than passage of scripture, isn't it? In theory, the story is ostensibly about the raising of Lazarus what will be the seventh and final wondrous sign that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John before his passion and death. But if you followed along with the reading today, you may have noticed that in this 45-verse-long reading about the raising of Lazarus, the actual miracle of Lazarus calling, being called forth from the tomb does not arrive until verse 44. This miracle is a slow burn, one that requires a tremendous amount of of setup. The story opens with Jesus in one county and Lazarus in another county. And Lazarus, a personal friend of Jesus, one whom Jesus loved, the gospel reports, Lazarus becomes quite ill and begins a sudden and rapid decline in health. His sisters try to get word to Jesus to, to come and help in the way that only a disease-curing, bread-multiplying, storm-calming, wine-creating Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world can help. Lord, they say via messenger, the one whom you love is ill. And Jesus, for reasons which remain off-limits to our understanding, does not go right away. In fact, his comments initially to his disciples feel a bit dismissive and dare we even say wrong. When he hears the news first, Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. Some Christians believe that Jesus as a human could foretell all things and, and they, they make this work with that, that Jesus wasn't really talking about his death, death, talking about his, he's going to be raised from the dead, but Jesus, I think, is just maybe not ready to admit the reality of terminal illness for his friend. He's not going to die, Jesus says, maybe in the way that a husband might say it when the oncologist tells his wife it's stage four and you better take care of things while you can. This doesn't lead to death, does it? However you slice it, when Jesus hears about his best friend's sickness, he stays up north. Then, after a few days, he decides to pay Lazarus a visit, but by that time, it's too late. Lazarus had died, leaving behind two sisters he was likely financially supporting and who would be anxious to know how they were going to survive with his death. Lazarus dies and is buried, and four days go by before Jesus finally makes an appearance. It's the worst fear of any person who pleads with God for help, isn't it? That we could pray and ask God to intervene only to find God seemingly remaining far away from us, unhurried by our grief, 
seemingly unmoved by our despondency. Some of us here today have faced that aching, cruel silence. We've stood at the graveside of our adult children. Some have buried infants. Some know people in our schools or our workplaces our own age who have taken their own lives for reasons that we do not fully grasp. We've cried out to God, but it seems like God is living in a different country, unmoved by our pain and our sorrow. Mary and Martha felt that way for sure. You can hear it in their accusatory words they both hurl at Jesus when he finally shows up. Lord, if you had been here, they say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Death is messy and chaotic and painful. It always is, no matter how old or young the person is. But when the person who died is older and had lived out a lifetime, it It softens the blow a little bit. We knew this day would come, we tell ourselves. It's sad, but it's here, and we knew to expect it. But when it is a 30-something-year-old young man in the prime of his life who tragically becomes sick, and then one thing leads to another, and suddenly hospice is being called in, and then there's nothing more to do except wait, well, that hurts differently, doesn't it? The tragedy of a premature death lingers with us. It haunts us. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and I'm inclined to think that means he was not a 98-year-old man who had lived out a lifetime. I think he was young, and this illness was a sudden and tragic turn of events. The rapid decline from he became ill to death is measured in days here, not months or years. I mean, before we get too far into this, think about Mary and Martha for a moment. I mean, they had to watch their brother become ill. They had to watch how local physicians tried various ointments and aids without effect. They would have held his hand and brought him a cool rag when the fever wouldn't subside. They, they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and eventually they tried to get word to Jesus, but nothing is working. He's getting worse. The sisters would have been the ones to tend their brother until the illness won, and his body gave up its final breath. They would have still been there, grief-stricken at the way death showed up at their doorstep and claimed their brother's life. They would have been the ones to prepare the body for burial, wrapping it with incense and binding it to his body with wrapped cloths. They would have been the ones to help carry him out to the family grave, unrolling the stone and laying him to rest. I mean, the whole lead up to his death and aftermath of it would have been scarring and traumatic for Mary and Martha, suddenly who had to endure such loss. That Lazarus was raised from the dead at the end of the story does not erase the pain they suffered watching him die. That will sit with them a while, I think. That is a scar that they will have with them. But anyway, 17 verses into today's reading, at just about the halfway point of the week-long morning rituals, with the house filled with family and neighbors who came to grieve with the sister, Jesus finally shows up in Bethany and goes near the house. And Martha and Mary both express their frustration about the circumstances to Jesus in very personal, accusatory ways, accusing him of not helping enough. 
Mary breaks down and weeps in anger and sorrow and frustration. And verse 33 says that when Jesus sees this raw outpouring of human grief from Mary, the gospel reports that he, Jesus, was greatly disturbed in his spirit and deeply moved. He who is resurrection and life, who is light and living water and bread of life, he who is the vine and the good shepherd, who is the word made flesh, faced with death and sorrow, Jesus is greatly disturbed and deeply moved. The sisters show Jesus out to the grave where Lazarus had been buried a few days earlier. And when Jesus arrives and sees the unremarkable stone grave where the broken body of his friend is laid, when Jesus sees how the chaotic, swirling arms of death are laid out all about him, when he looks around and sees just how awful the human condition can be sometimes and how much pain we have to carry, the text says that Jesus took it all in stride, right? I mean, surely it says he just said in a calm, monotone, hypnotic voice, calm down, everyone, I am the resurrection and the life. No. No, in verse 35, John tells us that Jesus wept. As Paul said, it is the shortest verse in all the Bible and arguably one of the most profound for us today because of all that it implies. Jesus wept. Standing there, the impact of Lazarus' death hitting him right between the eyes, Jesus wept. And church, Jesus did not weep politely or stoically or robotically. The word used for weeping is a word that's used elsewhere in Scripture to mean with loud cries and tears or with sighings and groanings or with appalled crying, with a convulsed face, as it's used in the Old Testament. Jesus ugly cried, we might say, heaving deep sobs unable to compose himself for a moment. You've been there, surely. You know the feeling when composure and control have fled the building of your psyche and all that's left is just pure, distilled sadness, an ache that seems to dominate your entire center of gravity. Jesus wept, and Jesus too here is cut to the heart. And he cries out in agony, partly in sympathy with his friends and partly in anger at the far-reaching influence of death and sorrow. I mean, Jesus, the one who is God's creation speech in human flesh, nevertheless encounters death and is provoked to external outrage and agony. Jesus wept. Before he called Lazarus forth, before the impossibility of life after death becomes realized in this moment, Jesus steps fully into the human story of suffering and sorrow and lifts up his voice in lamentation and grief. Jesus wept. Many have tried over the years to make Jesus weeping a spiritual thing, saying that Jesus was only weeping in anger because the people there didn't believe in him enough. But that interpretation makes Jesus into an anti-human, one whose ego is so self-centered that the death of a friend ultimately becomes only about himself. No, Jesus wept, and I believe he wept for grief, real grief, personal grief. As one New Testament scholar writes, as the Son of God, he does not come to redeem the world from imaginary grief or to make grief over death imaginary. Therefore, he joins the mourning procession for the friend whom he is to raise from the dead and 
he weeps. You and I know the end of this story. They arrive to the grave, and Jesus convinces them to roll away the stone that blocked the low entrance to the interior stone shelves where the bodies of the deceased would have been laid. Martha has some justifiable concern about this. The bodies already begin to decompose, and so she protests to Jesus by saying in verse 38 in the uh, preferable King James Version, Lord, he stinketh. But eventually the stone is rolled away. Jesus prays, and then he calls Lazarus out in a loud voice, and the dead man is revivified, reanimated, and comes forth not a zombie, not a walking corpse, but a living human again, one who was dead and now is alive. And the text ends by noting that many people who saw this believed. 43 verses of setup. One verse of a miracle, one verse describing its aftermath. Today we're nearing the end of our preaching series called Tested, and today we're seeing that Jesus was tested by despair. Like the children of we're going on a bear hunt, encountering the thick, oozy mud or the swirling, whirling snowstorm. In our reading today, Jesus encounters despair and death in the news that his friend has died. The bear hunt children realized we can't go over it, we can't go under it. Oh no, we've got to go through it. And so too, Jesus realizes that he cannot avoid death. He cannot avoid an encounter with despair and sorrow. Humans cannot go over or under grief or sorrow. We have to go through it, and we do go through it often. And if Jesus is tested like us in all respects, Yet without sin, then Christ himself will need to travel out to the outskirts of this human emotion, out to the graveside to sit among the dead where his best friend has been buried. Jesus, like us, goes through the chaotic swirl of grief that overwhelms us in times of tragic loss. Jesus encounters the death of his best friend, and there he is tested by despair. The loss of Lazarus tempts Christ tests Christ, invites him to consider that maybe death is just an abstraction, to consider it blandly or remotely, to remain detached from the pain of loss by virtue of his divinity, which told him death is not the end of the chapter. Jesus was tested by grief to see how would he approach the suffering of others. Would he go out to the grave and bring with him all of the trite phrases some Christians bandy about at times of death? Would he say to the sisters, don't worry, God is in control? Would he say to the sisters, God has a plan? Would he say, God just wanted Lazarus to be with him in paradise? Would Jesus quote Job, who piously said at the loss of his property and his children, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, would, would Jesus see people quivering with sorrow and chide them for not believing enough? Would he question their faith when they break down at the graveside? That is the test to Jesus today. And so it becomes absolutely crucial to us to see that Jesus meets this test head on, and we need to see that in Jesus weeping and being disturbed in his spirit, we find a Savior who, though he knows how the story will end, nevertheless acknowledges the present and fully joins in the mourning and sorrow. 
It would have been far simpler for Jesus just to skirt around grief, to go over it or under it by virtue of his nature as son of God. But he doesn't. Jesus goes through it. And if Jesus allowed himself to be fully engulfed in this loss, if he was emotionally present in such a way that his grief was noticed by others, if Jesus wept with loud cries and tears at the death of his friend, then we can too. It's part of our story that we cannot go over or under death. We cannot go over or under sorrow. We go through it, and we go through it routinely. It would have been easy for Jesus following this test to say, I'm never going on a bear hunt again. I'm never going to go through death myself. I'm going to find a different way. But thanks be to God that our Savior Christ did not. That he welcomed death and its role in his life. Today we are comforted by the news that our Savior, the one who redeems and rescues us, the one who shepherds us, is the one who weeps with us and grieves with us. And it will be that Savior who will be the one to call forth the dead from their graves with loud voice of resurrection. Church, may we cling tightly to our Lord Jesus, the one who weeps with us, and the one who is the resurrection and the life. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.